I'm going to be reading a compelling passage of Scripture this morning that um, it does exactly what I prayed about it. It completely resets uh, the vision. After I finished uh, the 9 o'clock service this morning, I was reminded of years ago, we were on Thanksgiving break with Diane's family, and one of her sisters taught a game to the family, and it was just a ton of fun. It's a card game. We were sitting around playing the card game, and three or four days later, another group of us in another room, sister-in-law wasn't around, we decided we'd play the game again, and it just was not fun at all. And I couldn't figure it out, and I realized, you know, it, it's certainly not me, it must be these people that I'm playing with. This is not the fun part of the family, evidently, I didn't know. And then sister-in-law bebops in, and she looks, she says, what are you doing? And, you know, we're playing this stupid game you taught us, you're doing it completely wrong. Oh, she retells the rules. Oh my gosh, okay, yeah, that is fun. So now we start playing it, a lot of fun, getting it completely wrong. This is how I think many of us are doing life. It's not completely what it was designed to be, and we're like, what? And Jesus comes along and says, it's because you're getting it completely wrong. So, Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34, and I'd love for you to look. You can go on your phone to mygateway.life. The sermon card has the scripture. Or it will be on the screen. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to look along because we're going to be referencing it periodically. Luke chapter 12, verse 22. And he said to his disciples, that's important. He's pulled the disciples aside for this. You'll see that in a minute. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right, Jesus answers our questions. That's what we've been looking at for the last four weeks. This is the fourth Sunday of Lent. And thanks so much for coming to Gateway and being with us today. And we've been taking a look at kind of big picture questions and allowing Jesus to speak in to those questions. And we've got a really convicting one today for all of us. What is the deal with success? You know, how do you get it? How do you keep it? What is it? You may have known this, but if you type into Mr. Google any word and just 
put out beside it quotes. Every word I've ever searched for, you can come up with quotes for, for that word. So this week I typed in success. Quote. In fact, the first option was quotes. So I hit on it. Success quotes, and I got some good ones. Wayne uh, Heisinger. Wayne, some of you know that name. He founded Auto Nation. He owned Blockbuster Video. Remember that? And he owned the Miami Dolphins. He said this, some people dream of success. Other people wake up every morning and make it happen. Michelle Obama was first lady commenting about her childhood. She said this, we learned about honesty and integrity, that truth matters, that you don't take shortcuts or play by your own set of rules, and success doesn't count unless you earn it fair and square. Colin Powell, four-star general, also served as Secretary of State under President George W. Bush. He said, there are no secrets to success. It's the result of preparation, hard work, and learning from failure. And these are great, inspiring quotes. They sound very American, don't they? These quotes tell us quite a bit about how these people think one gets success, and these people have found it, so we should listen. But they don't tell us what it is. They don't tell us what success is. So according to a survey of professionals in 16 different countries, and these are some European countries, there were some South American countries, there were some Asian countries, Canada, the United States, some Arabic countries. According to a survey of professionals in 16 different countries, the United Arab Emirates ranked number one in professionals feeling that they were successful in their life. I thought that was interesting. Number two was Brazil. No applause. <laughs> Third was India. I want you to listen to what the survey said about India. Quote, Despite a competitive job economy and rising inflation, one in 10 Indians feel optimistic about achieving success within the next year. That's double the global average. Here's what Indians said about success. This is pretty good. 79% said education plays a positive role. 65% identify good health as a factor. 57% identify work-life balance as a factor in success. And those are all good things. But in terms of the core issue, the core idea of success, a whopping 72% of Indians define happiness as the key to success. That's not bad. How about Americans? We're all here now, regardless of where you came from. So a survey was done by Reuters. Several thousand people were asked, and here's how the way they defined it. What does it mean to make it in America? The survey was called Making It in America. So they itemized out several different categories. Income. Now, currently, just an average of several thousand people, people are currently in America, the people who were surveyed, survey respondents currently make $57,426. But if they were making it, they would be making $147,104. Quite a few of you are making it. How about time off? I thought this was great. The average person, again, they took a conglomerate and then averaged them. The average person in America right now is, is, is off 2.8% weeks per year. If they were making it, they'd be off 5.3 weeks per year. I like this one, commuting. Commuting, now they're commuting 17 minutes a day. Northern Virginians would die for this commute. But if you were making it, the average American respondent said making it would be a 10-minute commute per day. Like it. Average home values, here's where we catch up. Now, the average home value in America is 248000 Making it, the average American respondent was 461000 which would buy you two-thirds of a townhome in Northern Virginia. <laughs> Lifestyle. This is interesting. If you've made it, how are you spending your time? 
28% said, I'm enjoying friends. 23% exploring. I don't know. I guess that means traveling. 21% working. 17% relaxing. 11% said, I'm helping people. This was the most interesting of all. If you haven't made it, what's missing? And there's no surprise here. 67% of us said, I don't make enough money. If I made more money, I'd be making it. 22% of us said something related, didn't we? Another 22% said, a dream job. 7% said relationship, family. 7% said, I'm not getting enough respect or recognition. What's the deal with success? How do you get it? How do you keep it? What is it? Look, let's be honest. That is not a burning question for you. You did not wake up on Tuesday morning taking your shower and say, Jesus, what's the deal with success? What you said was, should I sign her up for travel softball or not? The schedule will be nuts. Do I bring them onto the project or do I bring them onto the project? Do I take this job? Do I not take this job? Here's the thing about that question, though. The question of what is success is really underneath a lot of those other questions. It's a more important question for us than we think. I suspect that it sits at the corner of every intersection of the toll road and 28 all the way both directions. So what does Jesus say about success? I want you to know that the teaching recorded for us in Luke chapter 12, Jesus really is speaking directly to that. That's the topic. And I believe this teaching was given, and don't miss this, I think this teaching was given primarily for our benefit. And I'm not kidding. This was written for suburban Americans living in Northern Virginia. I think Jesus pulled his disciples aside to deepen the lesson here, and we'll see how in just a second. And he said to them, listen, this is a big one. When we finish, I want you to write this down because one day there are going to be a group of people gathered together in Northern Virginia. I know you don't know where that is, but it's, it's going to be there and they're really going to need this. So write this down, take good notes and make sure they get it because they're going to need to hear this. In this teaching, Jesus lays out two completely different and competing visions of success. First of all, he lays out the fuel for success in each vision. Then he lays out the emotional atmosphere in each. That is, what does it feel like to occupy that vision for success and to be pursuing it? Then he talks about what success looks like in our hearts and our actions in each version. And finally, he outlines the desired outcomes for each vision. Or in the case of, of his version, it's really the expected outcomes, obviously, Jesus has a clear opinion about which vision promotes the right kind of life and generates real success, so let's hear it. First of all, the fuel. Secondly, the emotional atmosphere. Thirdly, what does success look like? And fourth, what are the desired outcomes in each of these versions? Now, to fully answer his question, let's back up. We've got to take in the larger context. So we need to read verses 13 through 21 which lead immediately to our passage because verse 22, where we began, verse 22 lets you know that what he's about to say is really in response to what has just happened. As I've said before, whenever you see a therefore, you've got to ask what the therefore is there for. So we're going to look at what Jesus is responding to by looking at verses 13 through 21. And I'm going to ask if you would, this time as I read this, I want you to go old school with me and let's stand out of reverence for God's word. So I want you to hear this interaction and then 
you'll see how it peels right into what Jesus does and says next. So someone in the crowd, and that's really where we're taking our cue for the first vision of success. It's the crowd's vision. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Don't you know exactly what's going on there? But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he looks at the rest of the crowd. He says to them, Take care and be on your guard against all and the Greek word here is pleonexia. I looked it up. This is a quote from a Greek-English dictionary. A disposition to have more than one's share. Covetousness. Greed. Avarice. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying... The land of a rich man produced plentifully. So follow this story from Jesus now. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? Now pause. There are tons of things that he could do with these excess crops. Right? He could give them to his neighbor. He has neighbors in need. He could share. But our man does something different. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, important Greek word there, it means your essential self. I'll say to who I really am. I'll say to my deepest core. I'll say, look, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. You don't need to worry. Your worries are taken care of. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, have some fun. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You may be seated. And then, right after that, having completed this story, Jesus pulls his disciples aside. So he pulls to him the crew that has committed themselves to him. And this is where we get the fuel for the other version of success. He pulls his disciples aside and massages the truth of this parable even more deeply into their spiritual muscles. And in doing so, he gives us a clear signal as to the fuel that drives these two different visions for success. Here's the fuel. On the one hand, the fuel that empowers the crowd's vision of success is pleonexia. It's covetousness. It's avarice. It's greed. Look, the man who raised his hand in the crowd to ask Jesus a question, he didn't think of himself as greedy. His brother is the greedy one. And I'll bet, by the way, that all of us have known families who have literally disintegrated over literally this exact same set of circumstances. Jesus, make my brother pay me my part of the family's inheritance. And Jesus, who sees the heart for what it really is, recognizes what fuels this man's questions. It's always what fuels the crowd's vision for success. It's greed. Once again, last year, Loudoun County was one of the three wealthiest counties in America. It's been so for, what, 10 years. What do you think fuels that wealth? Is it greed or am I being too cynical? 
On the other hand, Jesus encourages a different fuel source, and that is discipleship. It's commitment to Jesus. He pulls his disciples aside. You are different, and I'm going to explain to you how you're different and what that means. He says to them, you have to get this. This is a big one. And he pulls them aside because he knows that they must embrace a completely different vision if they are to have the life for which they were designed. Embracing this vision and not that vision begins with a commitment to be a student to Jesus. That's where it starts. The decision must be made to follow him. In another place, Jesus told his students, hey, come learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. And some of you know that a yoke, old symbol, what they use is the wooden instrument that they use to tie two head of cattle together to pull something like a plow or whatever. And they would work together having that yoke around them step by step with one another. Take my yoke. Connect yourself to me. Learn from me. Follow me. The fuel that drives the crowd's vision is completely different from the fuel that drives the kingdom vision for success. It's equally important that we see the emotional atmosphere for each vision. And I think this is very convicting for those of us who live in Northern Virginia, or it should be. So what's it like to be on the inside for those of us who are living out this version versus those of us who are living out this version, what's it like to be on the inside? On the one hand, the emotional energy of the crowd's vision is anxiety. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus said in verse 22, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or your body, what you'll put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Don't be anxious. Because he knows that anxiety is what is the emotional atmosphere of this vision of success. And can any of us deny that Jesus got this exactly right? Those of us who live in the suburbs, we know about anxiety. You may know this, but anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting over 40 million adults over age 18. That's over 18% of the population. But you may not know that our children are experiencing anxiety disorders at an unprecedented rate. It's double the rate that it has ever been recorded. Over 15% of our adolescents today are experiencing some kind of mood disorder that is so severe they're being treated for it. And that doesn't begin to deal with the ones who are suffering in silence. I saw an excellent article this week about the current crop of adolescents entitled The Anxious Generation. The statistics are readily available, and they're staggering. Of course, we don't know for sure why they're so anxious, but the overwhelming preponderance of opinions, including the testimonies of the kids who are experiencing this anxiety, say that it revolves around pressure from home, school, and social media. That's us. We are killing our children. And I believe it's not an exaggeration to say that the largest cause of death is our commitment to the crowd's vision for success. I'm going to say that again. Some of you have little children. You can turn this around. We are killing our children. And I believe it's not an exaggeration to say that the largest cause of death is our commitment to the crowd's vision for success. Listen, I have a word to say quickly to those of you who have come from outside the United States. And there are many of you. Thank you for participating in Gateway. We're honored. 
I want you to indulge me and I want you to forgive me for a second for being so direct. But in many cases, it seems to me like you have let go of some of the best currents of your own native culture in favor of some of the worst of American culture. In many cases, it seems to me like your commitment to the American dream, which in large part is just a fancy way of saying the crowd's vision for success. In many cases, it seems like your commitment to the American dream is even deeper than the commitment of those of us for whom this dream is our native language. In many cases, you have outdone us in your belief in the crowd's vision for success, and that's not a compliment. The crowd's vision is fueled by greed, and the people who occupy that vision path are anxious. And we see that rampantly in our culture. On the other hand, the emotional atmosphere of the kingdom is dominated by, let's call it, consideration. I want you to notice what Jesus says. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. That just makes sense. Then he says, consider the raven. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than they? The word translated consider here is an intensive word. It means far more than look at. One commentary defined it like this. This is intensive careful scrutiny of an object over and over from every angle. In other words, think about your life, meditate on it, meditate on your connection to God, be mindful of who you are, slow down, consider, you are so valuable. You may not feel that, but you are. And life is not meant to be about accumulating as much as you can. You have a higher purpose than planning for prosperity. Consider the raven. Consider the lilies. This is the emotional atmosphere of kingdom success. It's the atmosphere of consideration. And then Jesus tells us what each version of success looks like when we're walking it. And the crowd's version, this is pretty obvious. Success looks like, I want what's mine. I want to get ahead. I want more for myself and for my kids. John Rockefeller one time was asked, how much is enough? And he said, more. This is what's happening for the brother who believes he's jilted, right? He wants more. He wants to get ahead. He wants what's his. I want you to imagine that you and I are in a sailboat race. I don't know why I picked this analogy. I know nothing about sailboats. So those of you who know about sailing, add some other terminology in here. But we've got all of the right Rigging, is that what you call it? We got the right stuff. And our boat has been built by the best boat maker in the world. I mean, it is, whew, this baby's going to hum. The sails are set, whatever you do to sails. <laughs> and we got a great crew. We got a crew that knows everything about sailing. They've won many races. They know a lot more than me. So we saddle up, and we are going to race from Bermuda to the Canary Islands, which is just off the coast of Africa, we get ready. We do some team building. This group's getting along. We can't wait to go. We start morning of, bang, race goes off. And I mean, we are flying. We're really flying. We're doing really well. We are moving at a record-setting pace. And let's recognize together that that won't matter at all if we're sailing west. We're moving away from the target at record speed. If we're sailing west... 
We've got to set our course east, or it does not matter how effectively we're sailing. It does not matter how well the boat is performing if we're sailing west. I'm convinced that if we follow the crowd's vision for success, we will not get what we really want, even if we get what we think we want, because we started off in the wrong direction. The end of this version of success is not what we were designed for, and that's even if we make it. So what's the alternative? In the passage we read, Jesus spells out the alternative very clearly. Kingdom success, first of all, looks like trusting God. Trusting God. Let me repeat, success does not look like wanting more, even if I end up with more. Success, according to Jesus, looks like trusting God. Verse 28, Jesus says, But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? You're not seeing this because you're not trusting me. Trust me, he says. God knows what you really want and he longs to give it to you. The fact that you don't see this is a sign that you don't yet trust me. You're committed to the crowd's vision for success even though you already know something's not right with it, yet you remain committed because you don't trust me. Kingdom success looks, first of all, like trusting God. Secondly, kingdom success looks like knowing God. Verse 30, Jesus says, he goes on, for all the nations of the world seek after these things your father knows that you need them. And what he's doing is he's instructing us of the kind of God that we have so that we can know him. Our father is not capricious. He's purposeful. God is not callous. He loves us. He's not absent. He knows what we really need and he longs to provide it. And when we know this, when we know God, we can trust him. Thirdly, kingdom success looks like seeking God. That's what it looks like. It doesn't look like aggressiveness at work. It looks like seeking God. Verse 31, instead of all that, seek his kingdom. These things will be added. Earlier in the sailboat analogy, we talked about sailing east versus sailing west. So if, you, if we're heading the wrong direction, if we're sailing west, what does that mean? In other words, what are the desired outcomes in the crowd's vision for success? Where is the crowd headed? Jesus makes this perfectly clear, doesn't he? Just look at what the man in the parable wants. He wants bigger storehouses. He wants more grain at the ready. And ultimately, he wants to eat, drink, and be merry. Who doesn't? This is Jesus speak for he wants more stuff so that he'll be comfortable and he'll experience pleasure and he'll have security and peace. Now look. Comfort and pleasure and security and peace are not bad things, not at all. We want this stuff, and we're right to. But the man is directionally challenged. He's headed west instead of east because, don't miss this, because he has attached those good things of pleasure and security, he's attached that to bigger storehouses and more grain. He wants to collect and keep and store so he can control so that he won't have to worry. And this, he believes, guarantees him pleasure and peace. This is, he believes, success. The irony is that as he works to not have worries, he actually ends up increasing his worries. And in the end, it proves pointless. His life wasn't under his control anyway. So Jesus ends up 
giving us the expected outcomes of the kingdom vision for success, the very end of what he says. And we're going to read verses 32 through 34 to get Jesus' kingdom version of desired or expected outcomes. And again, let's go old school, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me for verses 32 through 34. And not only so, but I want us to read this together. So this is Luke 12, 32 through 34, and Jesus is, you know what he's doing? Jesus is, is on the brow of the sailboat with a compass in hand at the steering wheel or whatever you call the thing on the sailboat, and he's pointing us in the right direction. So let's read together, choir. Fear not, little flock. All right, you didn't do very well, but that's okay because we need to emphasize this for a second. Already he's given us a hint. Fear not. And look at the intimacy of that, little flock. Let's read it again. Fear not, little flock. Okay, hold on. Little flock. This is what he calls us because he cares for us like a shepherd cares for his sheep. Let's do it again this time with gusto. Fear not, little flock. Stop again. I've got nothing to say. I just thought it'd be funny to stop us. From the top. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Hold on. Whenever Jesus says the kingdom, you underline that in your Bible and draw a circle around it because it means immensity, epicness. But one of the things that it means is connection to Him. Connection, real relationship with God. Let's keep going. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Pause. He's talking about the man in the parable. He had a really good year. So, use that good year to set yourself up, to solve some of your problems, right? That makes sense, and he's right to think that way, but he's headed in the wrong direction. What I'm going to do to solve my problems is, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down barns that I already have, and I'll build bigger ones. Let's keep going. Provide yourselves with money back. Stop. The vision here is not for you to be destitute. He wants, you to, they, he wants people to call you money bags. But he wants you to stuff those money bags with things that provide real security. Where are we? Provide yourselves. Let's go. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You may be seated. Do you see it? There are three things that come to Jesus' mind. Kingdom success results, first of all, in fearless living. Fear not, Jesus says, and the kingdom vision for success sets us free from fear. Plus, pursuing the kingdom vision for success offers us a real connection to God. That's always a part of what Jesus means when he uses the term kingdom, and kingdom success finally results in real security, real security. Jim Elliott was a young American missionary to the native peoples of the Amazon region in the late 1950s. His life was sprayed all over magazine covers. It captured the imagination of the world when he was killed by the natives that he went to minister to on first contact. His wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and their baby, by the way, later moved in 
among those same native peoples and led them to a saving knowledge of God and a commitment to Jesus Christ. This included the man who speared her husband. Before leaving for South America, Jim Elliott had written in his journal. He said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What? When we pursue kingdom success, we are pursuing what does not grow old, what cannot fail, what cannot be stolen or destroyed. This is real security. The choice is clear and very stark. I can sail west or I can sail east. I can choose the crowd's vision for success or I can choose Christ's. Now if I sail east in the right direction, that does not mean that Amazonian Indians will greet me warmly. But it means that I will be with God now and forever. It means that I can learn to live increasingly without fear. It means that I can experience a real connection to God, a connection that nurtures me and bolsters me through all of life's difficult seasons. It means that I can rest secure and at peace. For me, almost always when I'm thinking about my own faith, I think about my faith like a software upgrade. I need to do better with Diane or one of my boys. I need to be more patient. I should pray more. I should read a book on prayer. Maybe that will help. I need to get better at this or that. But I want to make something really clear this morning. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Jesus is not talking about a software upgrade. He's talking about a new operating system. He's talking about a completely different vision heading in the exact opposite direction from the one that our entire current is pushing us toward. So, I want you to do me a favor this morning. For a moment, we're going to be like an old school tent meeting. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. Now, there may be someone here who has never made that initial decision. You've never chosen to commit yourself to Jesus Christ. And I want you to know, honestly, I've prayed for you this week. You have never said, I'm in. Look, here's the compass, here's the steering wheel. You take it because my best efforts, and they've been really good at times, my best efforts have got me going in exactly the wrong direction. I'm so sorry. I'm not where I wanted to be, and I humbly confess that I need you. I'm not talking about religion. I don't care if you went to Sunday school or when you got confirmed. I'm talking about yoking yourself to Jesus Christ and making him it, the only thing. Completely different vision. So if you've never done that, I want you to do it right now. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's you saying, I'm so sorry. Help. I want you in my life. I want you to direct my life. I want you to be the governor of my life. I put a lot of effort into building the life that I currently have, and I've headed in the wrong direction. Please forgive me. 
and set me straight in the right direction. You take a moment and do that right now. I don't believe any of us are here by accident, and for a few of you, we're here today for you. For the rest of us, I want you to consider me today your re-enlistment officer, if there's such a thing. Those of you who served in the military, you know that there are these periods where you think about what you're going to do next. You know, yes, I'll re-enlist, I'm going to go for 20 years, or yes, I'll re-enlist, I'm going to go for life, I think I want to try to be a general officer. And there are moments when you choose to say, I'm still in, and I want today to be one of those moments for you. I want you to say, I'm still in with this. Because I'll guarantee you that some of you have lost the narrative. You have forgotten that you fully, you went all in, headed east. And you're in the middle of the Atlantic and you've just been through your third hurricane and you can't exactly remember why. And today you, you need to remember. So I don't care if you're 29 or 89. I want you to re-enlist today. I want you to sign up for life. Because the thing is, Jesus paid it all. One, that makes none of us strangers. <laughs> and two, that gives us hope. And it gives us peace. That's something to build a life on. Father, whatever you've done today, we ask that you would seal it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's stand together. Let's sing this chorus a couple of times with Moses to make sure we sign on the dotted line. This is your uh, re-enlistment officer. And this is you making this declaration that you're in. Jesus paid it all.
See?